Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 141.PS14107, certificate number 24269. Bone Wars. Other fossil reptiles were unearthed in rapid succession. Macrodontophion in 1834, Thicodontosaurus and Paleosaurus in 1836, Plateosaurus in 1837. With each new discovery came the growing suspicion that the bones represented a whole group of reptiles that had since vanished from the Earth. It's crazy when you think about it that dinosaurs ruled the world for 100 million years. Did they rule the world or did they roam the Earth? I hear both things. So I think it's undeniable they roamed the Earth. Not the whole Earth. They would roam. They would roam... The over small portions. I mean, d- uh, dinosaurs in general were widespread, but a given dinosaur could never roam the whole Earth. I see what you're saying, but dinosaurs roamed the Earth. Yes, dinosaurs each roamed segments of the Earth. But did they rule it? I'm going to hmm. say no. No, I don't think they did. No legislation? No, right. N- no real power structure? You know, dinosaurs had an awful lot of unearned privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Dinosaurs acted like they ruled the earth, but I think history proves otherwise. But they did roam the earth. They just think they could roam and rule whatever they wanted. I Roman mean, rule. Today you can't roam the earth. No. There's going to be a fence or a sign or something. Sure. And you'll get pissed off. Sure. I mean, I try to roam the earth. In, I keep coming up against fences. In Europe, you can still roam the earth because there's a lot of pedestrian right-of-ways that yeah. predate highways and stuff. In the U.S., good luck roaming much. <laughs> I, th- I like to think I rule the earth, but I'm alone in that. What would your, how, what would your claim <laughs> be based on? Is there some King Ralph scenario here that if Mike Gravel dies, you become the king of Alaska? I think it is that uh, no one else appears to be doing it. I think I'm overqualified. Uh, it's just a matter of time. It's one of those. It's just a matter of time. Isn't Tears for Fears very clear that Everybody wants to rule the world. You say nobody's trying to do it. I believe Tears for Fears teaches us that literally everybody wants to rule the world. Sure, everybody wants to rule the world, but no one's ruling the no world. No one's really taking a shot at and it. And the thing is just, it. you know what it is, is we don't see, we don't know where the chair is. Where's the Iron Throne? That's the question. 
It's kind of one of those like uh, first one to the chair situations. So you think if you could find the chair. Find the chair. Like maybe it's just somewhere on some mountaintop in Wyoming. That's the game I'm playing. Find the chair this whole time. And I know there are others who are trying to find the chair. The people are going to have to recognize your claim to the chair. I you, you rate just, my chances pretty highly. You just, if you just Instagram a photo of you in the right chair. Hmm. I think when you sit in the chair, the reverberation goes around the world like boom. People will just immediately realize, whoa, oh, something's, someone something's different. Ruling Let me the get world. online and see what's up with that. Yeah. But dinosaurs didn't have that kind of, unless spooky action at a distance, right? Unless the dinosaurs were all telepathic with one another. The dinosaurs' privilege did certainly not extend into four dimensions because for thousands of years of human history, nobody knew they existed. Isn't that crazy? Almost every human being that's ever lived had, had never heard the word dinosaur, which, so when, which was not coined until the middle of the 19th century. When bones crumbled out of a cliff on the southern English coast, people just attributed them to well, giant the, dogs, buried them? There was no concerted attempt to create a theory of what they were, an individual culture might be like, you know, Chinese culture might be like, well, those are some big bones out in the Gobi Desert. Right. Those must be dragons. Dragons. Or medieval Europeans might be like, I don't think that's an animal anymore. These must be... Dragons. Uh, giants from the book of Genesis. Oh, sure. When the angels in the book of Genesis um, come to earth and have half angel babies. Yes, half angel babies. You you have to wonder you have to wonder what actual Bronze Age Mesopotamian thing inspired that verse in Genesis. Like what what was going on at the time when they were like and of course then the angels came to Earth and had angel sex with non angels and that's where giants come from and kids are like oh yeah that's where giants come from of course like who who is getting explained away with this what weird tribe but uh, yeah like George Washington and Mozart all died without ever hearing the word dinosaur nobody knew they existed and fascinating. And of course, that's because most of those dinosaurs, Earth-roaming, world-roaming, Earth-ruling, which was it? Do they roam the Earth? They're roamers. Let's not say rulers. Let's just say they roamed the Earth. You believe that there was some kind of Cretaceous democracy. Mm, no, I believe that, uh, that UFOs came down <laughs> right. and genetically intervened in dinosaur evolution. The Earth was actually being ruled by our alien overlords that were just hurting the dinosaurs around. Yeah, hurting them, making shoes out of them, giant shoes for, although their feet weren't giant, they just loved giant shoes. That was part of uh, UFO fashion. <laughs> like you drive down the road on <laughs> Venus and it's like, stop at the world's biggest dinosaur skin shoe. And all the kids are like, dad, can we, dad, can we? <laughs> but it's testimony to how powerful the creation story was that as the world of science and the era of, scientific investigation, you know, grew in importance and interconnectedness. Still, even George Washington sort of labored under the the story of the earth being created in seven days. No even, one, even George Washington. No one ever brought him a skull of a, of a mountain cat and said, does this comport with the other story? Even no less an intellectual and public scientist than George Washington. As we all know, the biggest <laughs> brain of his day, the most famous physicist of his day, George Washington. What did Isaac Newton think? He, uh, George Washington. Well, Marker. you know, one of his most famous quotes, Isaac Newton said, uh, I don't know what dinosaurs are. <laughs> As he famously said. I have a great t-shirt of Isaac Newton's <laughs> face. Just says, I don't know what dinosaurs Remember are. Remember when never he said, did. I'm a huge dummy and have never heard of dinosaurs. And everyone was like, oh, Isaac, Lol. you're such a wag. 
Imagine somebody bringing George Washington like a saber-toothed tiger skull, and he yeah. makes false teeth out of it. Oh. And from then on, he's got these amazing incisors coming up from his lower jaw. I don't, don't think rule. that's how then he would have ruled the earth. Tiger teeth work though. They go down. Yeah, they go down. No, they go both ways. They've got big incisors coming. They go both ways. Yes. They, uh, that's, that's a, that, that was a little beneath me. Do you think that was a little hacky? Yeah, that was a little hacky. I'm not, I, I rescinded <laughs> the part of your brain that immediately says, Oh, both ways. When you hear the phrase both ways, it cannot be shut down. That's kind of your dinosaur hind brain there. So it's so old in me. It goes back to the seventies. The first time some kid did that to me. What, what does that mean? That fourth grade reflex. And you know, the reason why nobody understood dinosaurs is because, uh, they're hard to come by dinosaur fossils. Uh, right. I guess that's true. In most, if you live in South Dakota, they're not hard to come by, but if you live anywhere else. How many dinosaur fossils do you think have been found in Washington state? I don't know. Well, Washington state is buried under a half a mile of lava as we've described in our. There's lava, there's glaciation. It's not a good fossil state. If I remember right, I believe one dinosaur fossil has been dug up in Washington. And as a result, it's the state fossil. Is that right? Because <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the only applicant. It's like, well, you are both the best and the <laughs> fossil ever discovered in this state. Is it a trilobite? You're the state fossil. Oh, no, I'm wrong. Our state fossil is a Columbia mammoth. So that beat out the, the whatever the lone dinosaur fossil oh, is. Oh, I see. Sure. You know, because it takes exactly the right conditions for a dinosaur skeleton to survive. Like one in a million carcasses, something on the order of one in a million carcasses, it's believed, ever get fossilized. Wow. They have to be preserved immediately, you know, before the body can get picked away by scavengers or eaten or uh, tossed by winds or waves. They have to wade into a tar pit. Exactly. Yes. Got to be some kind of tar, sand, some kind of home alone type trap involved that covers the carcass very soon after its premature demise, or else that kind of dinosaur is just lost to lost history. Lost time. All those dinosaurs that were too fast to fall into the tar, jokes on them, Right. we don't even remember them. They were thinking, this is so sweet, all these other dumbass dinosaurs falling into tar, and we don't know anything about did not fall into Tarasaurus or <laughs> light-footed uh, walks carefully Adon. Adon. Uh, yeah. They're all gone. We're, we have Triceratops on all of our notebook folders, but Triceratops was the dullest of all creatures. <laughs> it, was just, it just kept falling down a lot or would get uh, covered by sandstorms easily. I wonder if that's true of futurelings, whether they look back at our time and the only exactly. things that are preserved are the omnibus and like NFL Sunday programming. <laughs> it has to be whatever just died in the most opportune way. Right. Like, uh, I don't know what that, like what leaves a huge carcass now? Like monster trucks? They, hmm. they think the earth was ro roamed and ruled by... Monster trucks? Yeah, well, which was it? They roamed the earth, but did they rule the earth? Monster trucks? Futurelings have no idea. We're here to tell them that one out of every seven days on Sunday, 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 <laughs> monster trucks did in fact rule our civilization. Bring the kids. Uh, but once the first dinosaur bones were found and people, scientists began to realize this was a totally new and undiscovered avenue. Found and interpreted. Right. There were, so the, the oldest dinosaur bone that we know of was a scientist named Robert Owen found in the 17th century. But again, no idea what it was, did not postulate giant lizards. So I have no idea what he had. Are you saying that uh, the ancients, let's say the Egyptians or the Sumerians, no one ever found an old dinosaur bone and encrusted it with jewels and put it on the top of a obelisk? There's some thinking that like maybe the ancient Greeks, you know, the reason why they 
believed in griffins, you know, these flying eagle lion things, is because they found protoceratops skulls in their Asian mines. But they didn't preserve them. Right. There's no, none of the great, like, uh, relics, it turns out, are not actually the thumb of St. John, but are actually like the thumb of a triceratops. No, nothing like that. I mean, in Siberia, you can see that people, you know, Ice Age humans were using mammoth bones, but, you know, those were their contemporaries. Those were not fossils they had rediscovered. Those were their, right. those were their pets. And in, in Flintstones parlance, maybe they're lawnmowers and record players. Sure, they were riding them just like Jesus did. Uh, I misspoke. It was Robert Plott was the British professor who found what we now know to be a megalosaurus bone. But at the time, he was just like, oh, it's one of Hannibal's elephants, clearly. Sure. Uh, died in my backyard. Sure. <laughs> but plot, P-L-O-T-T-E? No, not like... Uh, uh, <laughs> like... Not the Julie like d- d- Dirty plot? No. Uh, <laughs> P-L-O-T. I guess, oh. and in middle-aged... Uh, Plo. In mid- you think it was Robert Plo? Uh, well, I, d- I doubt he would say plot, but maybe. I think it's probably plot. And in middle age, uh, the plot thickened. But uh, Richard Owen was the one who you know, first realized there's probably a new order of giant prehistoric lizards and we don't have any more. Not necessarily connected to Hannibal. As we discussed on the megafauna, yeah, no relation. The megalomegafauna. As we discussed on the megalomaniac megafauna entry, um, there was some religious resistance to saying, this must be some animal that doesn't live anymore because why would God create something that doesn't exist anymore. Like the idea of extinction didn't exist. Well, didn't the flood story cover all that? Couldn't you say like, oh, this was some pre-flood thing that didn't make it onto the boat? That became a very common explanation later when you started, people started to having to reconcile Genesis with uh, dinosaurs. Um, they were sinful animals. I wonder if part of it is that, uh, you know, climate plays a big part in what gets preserved, obviously. It, you know, you want... A sandy, dry desert, nothing rots. Instead, sand just covers stuff up and uh, it stays there long enough for minerals to start crystallizing the bone lattice. Ah, minerals crystallizing in the bone lattice. And Europe has a distinct lack of deserts, or at least it does today. But peat, peat is good, right? Don't don't we end up finding a lot of Vikings that fell into the peat bogs? Yeah, I think it's just like... Because there's no oxygen in them. Ladies collecting mushrooms and then they turn into cool-looking mummies. Right. Which, you know, they didn't want to happen, but maybe the coolest thing that ever happened to them. Exactly. It's another one of those things where it's like, there were probably a lot brighter girls in her village. She's the dingling that fell into the bog, but she's the only one we remember. Do you think... If you, we look at her how, shoes and are like, nice shoes. How many years of your life would you sacrifice to know that you would be remembered as some cool-ass mummy in a thousand years? I like, don't feel like mummies get remembered for the same things that I want to be remembered for. School kids would file past you and think you were kind of spooky in a metal kind of way. That's not what I'm into. I know there are lots of people out there that are like, nothing better than that is ever going to happen to me in my life. Let's do it now. We call them goths. But me, I think, no, I want people to read my poems. Oh, well, yeah, you can achieve immortality through your work. I mean, if I fall into a bog with my poems well, in my here's the breast thing. pocket. You do both. Make sure your poems are preserved somewhere, mm-hmm. some kind of golden trapper keeper golden, hidden, yeah, in right. the, hidden in the Himalayas. And then you're free to do whatever you want with your corpse. Your immortality has been assured through your, your soul living on and inspiring new romantics generations. Hence, now's the time to fall into some kind of quagmire or, uh, or quicksand. I like that idea, although I think I would prefer that my bones be bejeweled and placed on an altar where people file through and and say, like, 
say certain catchphrases from my podcasts aloud <laughs> and hope like, that it brings like them forward. Like it's fortune. Bill and Ted, but everybody's <laughs> chanting like yeah. seven-sided lighthouse, <laughs> all the great shows. Keep the small backpack. Uh, you know, dinosaur nature sometimes bejewels its own fossils. Oh. Like nature sometimes will vajazzle a fossil. Like the way opal forms, for example, if that happens in a bone lattice or whatever in a in a decaying carcass of some kind you can get dinosaurs where the the mineral filling in the calcium is actually opal wow that's what i want well that's how i want to go know, amber like i could see you preserved in amber and worn it as an amulet on the that would on, be a lot of amber like well, well that's what i'm saying think like the giants Jurassic that Park are mosquitoes. that are half angel would wear you in a an amber necklace with their giant uh lizard shoes you, the good thing about getting Frozen in amber is that some future Scotsman could figure out how to extract your blood and reclone you. Mm. Spare no expense in, in <laughs> John Roderick Park. Welcome to John Roderick Park. No true Scotsman would do that. <laughs> you're saying that, uh, what's his name in the Jurassic Park movies? Or you're saying that Rich, Sir Richard Attenborough would not, John, I almost had it. His name is John. John. Dur. Dur. This, is John Dur. this is creating that thing on podcasts where <laughs> people, everyone but me, knows the name of the guy. Yeah, and, and me. It's, it's driving them nuts. What's great is that we're the hosts of this show. So the fact that neither of us know what you're talking about. Let's never say no. the, the last name of Richard Attenborough's character in the Jurassic Park. It's just like me not ringing the bell for all of your terrible jokes. Nobody's going to get closure. It's better. Everyone's going to get so <laughs> angry. And if this is the only way in which that character name survives to the to the far future era, like it's now lost forever. The lack of a bell is rings louder than a bell. <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout speaking of things that were lost forever you know once the western united states was opened up uh, vast new tracks for dinosaur hunting and some of that perfect climate for finding undiscovered carcasses. So there was a great dinosaur fossil rush mm -hmm. in the mid to late 19th century. And the two most prominent personalities in that field became part of just this irresistible story. This is paleontology 101 that I hope the future doesn't have access to, but I felt like this had to be in the omnibus. They're busy excavating our bones. <laughs> Do they care about <laughs> our venal paleontological squabbles? Uh, there was a paleontologist named Edward Drinker Cope. 
mm-hmm. who was sent by his wealthy Quaker parents to Germany in the 1860s to avoid conscription in the Civil War. He's got a great serial killer name. Uh, both of these men do. Edward Drinker Cope, while he's in Germany avoiding the draft and studying natural history, which is you know what we call science today, sure. uh, meets Othniel Charles Marsh, hmm. another young natural historian. But, also American? Budding biologist, also American, from a different background, though. He's, uh, he's from working class roots. But these two become fast friends. I, I presume two of the few Americans of their generation at, at this German university. How did he end up uh, studying paleontology in Germany, or I'm sorry, natural history in Germany, uh, being from his working class background? The Marshes were from upstate New York, and although they were of uh, humble means, he had something that I didn't know existed in real life. I thought it was only a fictional trope, an extremely rich uncle. Oh, wow. I've wanted one my whole life. I know. Nature continues to not deliver to me the rich uncle that I feel I deserve. Yeah. But uh, in this case, he's going to enter into the story later because he's the wealthy banker and philanthropist, George Peabody. And today, the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale is named for Marsh's uncle. Sure, I know George Peabody. So that allows him to study in Berlin and Heidelberg and Breslau, where a lot of the research in this budding science of paleontology is happening. So Cope and Marsh become friends. It's fun to imagine them in a, at a German beer garden, tossing back uh, a brewer to evidence that they're friends. Uh, Cope names one of his earliest discoveries, an amphibian fossil, after Marsh. Hmm. Is that why we call Tyo- marshes marshes? That's exactly right. <laughs> Up until then, they were called wet places that the clumsy dinosaurs and Irish women keep falling into. Uh, no, this uh, amphibian was called Teonius marshy. I think it's got a mm. silent P. And Marsh, in return, named a mosasaur, a big sea serpent thing, Mosasaurus copianus. Oh, that's sweet. Um, it seems sweet, but it turns out the discovery of the Mosasaurus skeleton from New Jersey is what begins some bad blood. Oh, dear. Between Othniel and Edward. Let's remember not to name any of our discoveries after one another so that we never spark any kind of bad feelings. What would you name after me? Maybe if I discover if I discovered the magic chord, I don't think I would name it yeah, after I'm a, you. I'm a non-musician. Yeah, I think I would name it. I'd have to name it after like a pretty lady. You'd have to. What? Well, but you, if you discovered something uh, vaguely trivia related, hmm, let's see. Let's see. One I... evening, you're noodling at your piano, trying to find the lost chord, but Jeopardy is on, and you accidentally <laughs> discover a new Jeopardy technique, a game-changing Jeopardy technique, like uh, like really betting high and always choosing the highest paying category and, and yes let's say you happen to be watching someone in our searching, era searching for the daily doubles revolutionizing to, jeopardy would you name that the jennings oh, would i flip? call that the jennings the flip? jennings maneuver uh, no i think you had your chance to Im- <laughs> imprint your name on some famous jeopardy technique uh the problem is in this new jersey fossil quarry where marsh named this mosasaur after cope marsh and cope had visited it together as buddies, but Marsh had then drawn aside the quarry owner and made a side deal and said, hey, when you find stuff, don't send it to this guy. Whoa. Send it to me. Well, what a sneak. It's a violation of what seems like scientific etiquette and fair play, right? Sure. Uh, Maybe he slipped him some money. I don't know. It seems likely. Why why else would he do a favor for him? We know my next door neighbor, 
at my old house. He worked in excavating. Uh, he was he was a guy that that dug sewers for large developments. Mm-hmm. And anytime he found anything cool in the hole, you know, old bottles and old stuff, you know, from early Seattle, he would bring them over and put them on my porch. Whoa! You had your very own Boo Radley. Yeah. So he didn't uh, he didn't care about any of that stuff. It wasn't you know he was just like ah these old bottles and and uh, hair cream tins and, uh, and medicament. Spanish packages. doubloons. He, uh, so I have a big collection of that stuff. I bet he kept all the good stuff. <laughs> he, yeah, he probably did. He just brought you the crap. He kept the doubloons. Let me just eBay. <laughs> let me just check this on eBay. Nope. Uh, so Cope is furious when he finds out that Marsh has, uh, kind of, uh, hoodwinked him. I'm furious on Cope's behalf. And there's, you know, and there's probably some class issues here as well at play, you know, um, Marsh probably considers Cope to be a wealthy dilettante, just some guy coasting on family money, not a real scientist. Whereas Cope, you know, probably has disdain for working class Marsh, who he thinks is rough and uncultured and not apt for the scientific life for that reason. Right, of course. Because as we know, scientists are all the scions of wealthy families. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) right. The best qualified to be military leaders and scientists. That's exactly what happens in our civilization today. You Mm -hmm. know, the first generation makes the money and the second generation amasses it and the third generation all becomes groundbreaking scientists. (laughs) They pour it into (laughs) super colliders and hadron colliders and Mm -hmm. stuff. But Cope is able to get his revenge on Marsh. Marsh has uh, discovered a new plesiosaur, one of these long Loch Ness monster-looking jaws. Right, the most pleasing of all sores. <laughs> that's that's where it takes its name from, the fact that it's so pleasing to see uh, tooting its, its horn above Loch Ness, uh, which he calls Elasmosaurus platurus. And when he exhibits his elasmosaurus for the first time, Cope says, hey, you put the head on the butt end. Oh, Vern. Was it true? He Mar- reconstructed it wrong. Marsh does not believe it. But the curator of the museum takes a look and says, yeah, all the vertebrae are on backwards. Shouldn't that be pretty, uh, like, first order of thing to look at? Like, well, think about which a, way do vertebra go? Think about a long nest monster. It's kind of bulbous in the middle, but it's tapered at both ends, one of which is a tail and one of which is a head. But aren't the rib? don't the ribs, like, go in one direction? Oh, you don't want don't you don't know. want reverse direction ribs. It would have ribs, yeah, right? Yeah, the ribs would get hung You'd up think? on stuff. Maybe they didn't have the full skeleton. I see. In any case, Marsh's vanity is deeply bruised by I this. Bet. And it is on from that point on. Uh, he considers Cope a bitter enemy. Uh, Cope's already mad at him for his sneaky deal with the New Jersey fossil quarry. Begun these bone wars have. Have you ever had a rival uh, in your field? Oh, Some- yeah. Do you consider everyone in Indie Rock your rival? No, but there are definitely some rivals, some people. Um, you know, I, I think in most cases, all of my rivals have bested me. Because you never think of your rival as being someone that you're always like like being better than. At least I don't. Right. Like I mean, that's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's just like, I, I was very surprised to find out how many people... For how many people I am their Jeopardy nemesis. Right. Because they are not mine. But you don't have it's, one. It's not reciprocal. <laughs> <laughs> but like my my primary uh, music rival was always Colin Malloy from the Decemberists. Because we had, we got our start kind of at the same time. And then his career, you know, there was a, there was a little period there where we were, we would play in Portland and open for them and they would play in Seattle and open for us. And it seemed like, oh, we're friend bands and we're doing friend band things. And then they got famous and rich and. Then we just went to war. 
with one another in the friendliest way possible. It's something you do notice on any segment of showbiz Twitter or showbiz social media that people are genuinely unhappy. It's universally known that everyone is genuinely unhappy when something good happens to anyone else in their field. Yes. And, and everyone's aware of what an awful look this is. This is like an upside of social media is that you really have to put on some performative, that's great. Hey. And it's probably good for so people to have to exercise you. those muscles, you know, because if you do smile and say gracious things, that that must sink in at some point, even if it's deeply opposed to your awful venal first impulse, which is that clearly should have happened to me, the protagonist of reality. What's, Not to call him Malloy. What's crazy about those kinds of rivalries is that these days we're much more able to, I mean, although Instagram and those things present this idealized world and you can have, at least for me, like I see little moments of success in my friends and go, damn it, why am I not able to rent a house in Switzerland for a year to sit and think my deep thoughts? But then you know that that's, you know that they're also having a hard time. You know, they're, right. they're, they're struggling and life is hard for everybody. And, and if nothing else, somebody at that level has just picked somebody one tier up to be like, why am I still flying commercial? You know, like, why am I not at this level? And, and it, it doesn't matter. Almost and people do, people are. idealize my life and I, living within it, walk around in a cloud all the time. So I don't think anybody has it better or worse, really, than anyone else. It's just like how you live in your mind. It uh, it appears to have really messed up these two gentlemen. Like I assume your your friendly joshing with Colin Mola does not actually keep you up nights or will not end with you dead in a ditch. Oh no, he and I routinely kill one another's pets. <laughs> <laughs> Nail them to the front doors of our homes. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> what happened with Marsh and Cope. Uh because at the worst possible time, as their relationship is souring, suddenly a massive fossil bed is discovered in the American West. Oh boy. A Colorado school teacher tells Marsh, hey, you know what, what I've Oh, so found. these two uh, are prominent enough in their fields that they are the earliest to hear about this great discovery. They are absolutely at the head of their field. And Marsh is the earliest to hear. And he, of course, pays the guy $100. Hey, don't tell Edward Cope, my enemy. Are they doing other things on the side to be enemies with one another? Or was it all just this one kind of, or is it all this like dirty dealing? Like drawing d- on each other's faces Yeah, or like did one, or? Of them, did one of them like flirt with another one's girlfriend or something? Almost all the squabbles appear to be professional, but it's really in every arena of the 19th century paleontologist's life. These guys are squabbling. Like, you know, when, once Marsh gets in ahead of Cope at this new Wyoming fossil grounds, you know, Cope obviously finds out and starts digging next door. And so, you know, there, there are times in the 1870s and 1880s when they are just finding new fossil digs and then realizing they don't have time to excavate them, trashing them before the other can get there. Whoa, actually ruining the bones. Yes. Ruining the science. Um, stealing bones from one another's sites by night. Definitely spying on each other. Marsh instructed you know, sent telegraphs west to say, keep an eye on Jones's men. Jones was his, they had code names for each other. That's the degree. It's not, it's not that great of a code. Jones. That's not what, that's not what you would pick. (laughs) Almost rhymes. Yeah. That's quite a rhyme. That's how you can tell we are not yet, uh, you know, the kind of podcast hosts who secretly hate each other because we don't have code names for each other. Have you talked to (laughs) Brennings? How about Ron (laughs) Jodrick? (laughs) So now, now uh, this does not, Give me a lot of, um, I'm not convinced that they really care about the science at this point. I mean, are there other instances, can you think of, where scientists 
are ruining their own experiments destroy, despite a rival. Yeah, destroy like evidence uh, of great mysteries in order to just have a personal vendetta. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is coming from Marsh's kind of uh, tough, street smart background. Is he's you know he comes from a, a milieu of you do what it takes to get ahead, and he's, he's all like, "What?" He's in there swinging a chain. But you know, but this is where Cope can actually come out ahead you know, as maybe somebody with a leg up in the academic community, he tries uh, a taxonomic land grab, basically. Mm-hmm. He tries to get to publish first. Good. So he wages an academic war. Good man. Rushing 76 articles into print in the space of a year or two, buying his own journal at one point. Take so, that, Marsh. So that he can get his own stuff out there. Thug. And so he, you know, he's the one saying, I got this species, I got this species, you know, basically calling dibs, calling shotgun on every new dinosaur while Marsh is, you know, not getting into the journals. Um, But Marsh, interestingly, despite his working class background, appears to be better at playing the political game. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Marsh realizes he's getting beat in the academic journals, so he goes to Washington. Okay. He leverages his wealthy Uncle George Peabody's connections to buy drinks for the right guys and grease the right wheels and befriend the right senators and flatter their wives. And soon he is the first person in a new office, the chief paleontologist for the United States Geological Survey. Oh, let's not say that politics don't work. It works perfectly in this case because now he's got the power. He's the government agent. He can, in fact, cut off Cope's access to these sites. He can cut off his funding. Um, previously, you know, the government would give big money to whoever could publish these lavish, large books oh, of new illustrations. Yeah. And now he could just be like, and Cope's not getting any of those contracts anymore. Uh, wow. So, you know, while this rough and tumble desperado stuff is going on at Como Bluff, Wyoming, you know, uh, literally Cope and Marsh's men throwing rocks at each other when they should be digging because their number one job is to hate the other guy's guys. You have to wonder what, what the source of this emotional energy was. And I have to think that maybe they were in love with each other. I mean, this is exactly what you would see on a school ground between two little boys that, that were in love, but couldn't admit it, you know, within the culture of their time, couldn't confess. And that all, all their, their, you know, love and sexual energy got converted into this hate that wouldn't abate. So these are bone wars, but just not the bone you're thinking of. That's right. (laughs) 
that's a that joke is beneath you, but I but I don't even have I don't even have like a horn that I can sound. We need to get you a little bicycle <laughs> horn while your bell is in the shot. <laughs> yeah, and and it's interesting how it, whatever it was animosity, class warfare, sexual energy, that it seeped down to the workers who essentially become rival street gangs. Oh, well, sure. They're either so loyal to their boss or they've heard so many awful stories about the other boss, of which there appear to be plenty on both sides, that they really do feel a a deep anger towards the guys digging on the other side of the ridge. Paleontology is such a weird science. Although, you know, we have a lot of scientists uh, that we count among the futurelings. It's not uncommon for people to connect with us through the through the halls of time. In, in our era or possibly people doing five-dimensional future science. Right. And so I have maybe more uh, insight into the world of scientists, not the world of science, but the world of scientists culturally, more than I would have ever thought I would or more than I would even like. More than you merit, certainly. But uh, But they are socially, like, they're clicky and they are combative and they are paranoid and there's a lot of uh, politics in science. Think how petty so much of academia is, you yeah. know, showing up the other guy and uh, I, I've seen Twitter threads where it's like, describe the most humiliating thing that one of your peers ever did to you at a conference and you your jaw will just drop at these awful humiliations that people are visiting on who they perceive as the new threat or the young hotness or, but, or you know, the woman who dares to be in the, try to break into the boys club or. But paleontologists somehow even worse because they're out there baking in the hot sun. Yeah, they, they work get cranky. Thanklessly for decades. Plus it's literally the wild west. I mean, there are gunslingers and outlaws and, you know, stuff is getting settled by frontier justice all around them. And maybe that social code kind of seeps into even these loftier pursuits. So Cope is in trouble. Marsh has managed to cut off his funding at the source, at the Washington, D.C. pork faucet. Now, who are you rooting for in this? Do you have a favorite? I know you're like a, you, you always side with the working class guy because you're a man of the streets. Well, from the beginning, sure. You know, the, the wealthy Quaker kid who dodges the draft, you know, people are dying at Antietam in his place while he's, you know, drinking a beer in Heidelberg. Right. Not super likable. Right. And, but it, it does appear that Marsh is the one who strikes first. By trying, you know, bringing a a gun to a knife fight, basically, mm-hmm. you know, like bringing his Buffalo Niagara County street law to New Jersey and saying, "Hey, you need to screw over this guy. Right. I want, he, I want the first look at all your bones." He plays dirty, and then he keeps playing dirty. He does, and you know, there's retaliation. Maybe this is the kind of thing where nobody remembers who threw the first stone, but Marsh doesn't come off real well, in my view. But you feel, and you feel especially bad for Cope because once his funding is cut off, he's the one who really suffers first. Well, he's trying to play by the rules of his world, which is publish first. Yes. And, 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 you know, and genteel, you know, he's, I don't know, maybe uh, Philadelphia business magnets of the 19th century were actually (laughs) awful. And (laughs) let's assume they were. (laughs) I assume they were doing all kinds of underhanded dirty dealings. But he sees himself as a scientist and presumably above all that. Right. But as a result, he is suddenly has no income. He he goes into some real speculative silver mining uh, venture. Venture. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I used to know words. Silver mining venture in New Mexico, I think, and just loses everything, Hard. including his wife and kids. His family leaves him, and so he's alone in a sad Philadelphia apartment. And Mar- that's when Marsh tries to deliver the coup de grace. He tries to steal Cope's fossils, saying uh, that this had all been collected with government funds. Uh-oh. 
Stealing your fossils is something, that's, that's code in club kid language. But Cope has receipts. Cope can prove that he has actually funded most of these ventures and that Marsh is just making stuff up. So Cope goes to the paper with all of his notes about Marsh's underhanded dealing. Here we go. So for two weeks, we got alternating headlines in the New York Herald Examiner or the the World Picayune or whatever. Sure, this is when reading the newspaper was fun. This is why everybody rushes out and gets the new edition because somebody powerful is doing something dirty to somebody else. And it's a real spectator sport watching these two go at each other and be like, but he used the Smithsonian to, no, 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 but he. He put the head on backwards. <laughs> Uh, in the end, the headline war is what does in March. The U.S. Geological Survey does not want their head guy involved in this kind of mudslinging. Oh, sure. He's supposed to be above the fray. Exactly. He's a government official. And this looks awful. And it, all the dirty dealings he did to secure this job and all his professional it prestige is out. coming out. He is fired. They get rid of the chief ge- uh, paleontologist position altogether. And the Smithsonian seizes all his fossils. Boom! Smithsonian comes in. This is what's great about the Smithsonian. They're the 800-pound gorilla. You can't, you can't do anything when the Smithsonian comes <laughs> no, in. you can't. So everything's coming up Edward Drinker Cope briefly while Marsh descends into poverty and disrepute and ruin. Right. But then Cope has a series of health setbacks. Oh, no. And he ends up, I don't think you can blame Marsh unless Marsh is actually poking him with a polonium umbrella on the... You never know. On the Brooklyn Bridge. Possible. Can't prove he didn't. And as a result, he starts having to sell off his fossil collection piecemeal. And I think he's unable to command very high prices for it because his reputation as well has suffered in the newspaper war that he commenced. So he has to sell his collection off piecemeal just to pay the bills, keep the lights on, pay the doctor. All the young paleontologists are finding new and exciting fossils. They don't even care about his old fossils. Well, that's happening too. This was a two-man race for a long time because these two were the early adopters. But suddenly, this, like you say, the Smithsonian's moving in, Harvard's moving in. Suddenly, there are these real giants in the space, and these two scrappy youngsters are not able to compete. They're no longer so young. And as it turns out, both men end up dying in poverty Mm. uh, as a result of essentially ruining each other and themselves with this self-destructive firefight. Can you imagine if they had instead found a way to partner either as a, you know, in their youth as sort of a, if they made a single entity like the two of us are in a corporation or if they had admitted and acknowledged and professed their love for one another and had joined in a what would have been a closeted but very productive union? So much of, you know, the public television of our childhood was about learning cooperation because yes. the children's television workshop was well aware that children do not often play well with others. Also, I mean, the first thing we learned was how to pronounce cooperation. 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 And, you know, they, Sesame Street didn't have a position either way about two deeply closeted paleontologists finding love on the bluff beneath the wide Wyoming skies. But I'm going to guess which way they fell. <laughs> in favor, probably. In right? favor. Definitely yeah. in favor. Um, but but you couldn't say that on TV in, in 1975. No, but this is a real, I mean, I think the movie about this is a real Brokeback Mountain scenario. Uh, a movie was, I think, briefly greenlit with Steve Carell and James Gandolfini. Oh. And then Gandolfini's death. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, killed the whole thing. I thought you were going to say Steve Buscemi, and I was going to be like, this is the best movie ever. You are on board. <laughs> Steve Carell and Steve Buscemi. <laughs> so 
Stephen Colbert <laughs> and Steve Carell as the ambiguously gay paleontologist. Oh, come on. That's a great movie. So even as, uh, even with their built-in rivalry and all the fossils they self-sabotaged, uh, these two had an amazingly productive couple decades of work. 142 new fossils were discovered during the Bone Wars. Are those fossils by Marsh and Cope. still in, uh, in museums, in, in circulation? Yes. Uh, in the Smithsonian, in the Peabody Museum at Yale, uh, you can find the relics of the Bone Wars, including some of our most famous celebrity dinosaurs, the Diplodocus, Allosaurus, Stegosaurus, all discovered for the first time during this sexually charged squabble. Huh. I wonder if their celebrity now is a component in the value of the bones. It's a funny thing today where, you know, for hundreds of years, George Washington didn't know about dinosaurs. For hundreds of years, he lived to be That's what I heard. 490 years old. Right? <laughs> Never heard about dinosaurs for a he single I, one of those days. He and I talked about it a lot, and he was like, I don't believe in them. <laughs> uh, whereas today, every three- and four-year-old child in the world has a shelf full of books about dinosaurs and can pronounce these awful... Uh, Chinese-derived Mongolian fossil names that right. I, that with X's and Q's in them. So today, like these 19th century paleontologists are Indiana Jones-style heroes in a lot of these children's books. Oh, interesting. So Marsh and Cope are probably more famous today than they have been at any time since they were trading headlines <laughs> in the, the New York Fictional Observer. But their squabble actually has continued beyond the grave. And this is something for futurelings to be aware of in their time. Ghost um, paleontologists still fighting it out. Posthumous paleontological battle here. Uh, Edward Drinker Cope, when he went to his grave with just a few dollars to his name, left a last request that his head be donated to science uh-huh. in hopes that it could be dissected and proved that his brain was abnormally large, certainly larger than the brain of Othniel Charles Marsh. Go on. <laughs> Marsh, who outlived him, declined the chance. So they're... If you want to follow your theory of they're comparing the size of body parts. Yes. Marsh declined the challenge, was buried with his brain intact, and Cope's unexamined head is still resting on a shelf at the University of Pennsylvania today. In a jar? I can only presume. Like Richard Nixon? <laughs> Do you believe Richard Nixon is in a jar at the University have of Pennsylvania? You, have you never seen Futurama? Oh, yeah. He's yes, president yes. of the future. His head is in a jar. I see. I don't... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. How do you preserve a brain for 150 years? I mean, it's not his brain I'm worried about. If he was decapitated and his entire head was put into a jar? He's just gazing uh, out. That would be a thing to see. Uh, Futurelings, uh, if you have access... To the University of Pennsylvania. (laughs) To the University of Pennsylvania (laughs) Alumni Society or some kind of time travel, if you have access to both the jar containing Edward Drinker Cope's head and the grave site containing Othniel Charles's Marsh's head. This is your assignment. I need you to find out once and for all. You need to settle the bone wars, find out which of them was smarter, and if you have some kind of finally DNA test for this, if you can confirm John's theory about their deep love for one another. I mean, I, I guess they could <clears throat> take the DNA and clone them and then... And see if they're still fighting? See if they're still fighting or if they, if they fall into each other's arms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or clone them and put them in a cage match and see what happens. Do that over and over throughout time. Make them keep fighting each other. See who wins 51% <laughs> of the battles and who only wins 49. We'll finally have a winner of the Bone Wars. And that concludes Bone Wars. 
Entry 141.PS14107. Certificate number 24269 in the omnibus. I went to PS14107. That's in, the, that's in the future when New York has PS one four one zero seven. When New York has tens of thousands of <laughs> elementary schools, famously great elementary school, you had to apply for it when you were in preschool. Simon and Garfunkel met at PS one four one zero seven. Futurelings, you have your assignment. Please research the Bone Wars scientists and get back to us with with scans of their of one's desiccated brain and one's formaldehyde preserved brain. Every time we describe awful people that you never want to hang out with, please resurrect them. Resurrect see what them. happens. That's what we want. And set them either to war or to bed. Uh, go find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and at Omnibus Project. Also go to my Instagram account for lols and raffles. Ruffles? Ruffles rolls on the floor laughing. Ruffle on your Instagram stands for Roderick uh, Lee Market uh, Liaisons. Do you put a lot of Lee Market Liaisons on your... No. I guess I've never been to your Instagram. I'm going to go right now and check it out. Yeah, no, you should go. Uh, Let me suggest that you lurk there under uh, the name Ken Jennings where you never post and where your avatar is an egg. I do actually look there. I like when you (laughs) post uh, people's Alex Jones bumper stickers. Uh, also, you can email us, please do, at theomnibusproject at, ken, at gmail.com. Ken will read your emails, and then if you make a suggestion for a show, and it's a good one, Ken will take it and not reveal it to me. And if it's a bad one, he'll put it into a list, and then he'll give it to me every once in a while. The topic wars. Here, here are I, some topics. If I find a good topic, I destroy it. I never even record it. I just That's don't right. want John to have it. That's right. You burn it. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page, uh, The Omnibus Futurelings, and uh, have some merry, merry old times. And please send us all of your grandfather's old britches to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155, USA, America. Listeners, from our vantage point here in the final years of USA, America, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We speak to you from the distant past, fossilized ourselves. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. We will drop it in the peat bog tonight. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.